Welcome to Living Word Bible Church, a lovely place for families where we have a passion to sing great songs to Jesus and where sound Bible teaching is central in home groups and in preaching at Sunday services. Living Word Bible Church, teaching the Bible. Isaiah's Commission. In the year that King Azura died, the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet. Two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King and the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See? This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Yvonne. Good job. Uh, good job there, Nikki, too. <laughs> You've got the job now, right? So, it's yours. Hey, hope you're warm enough. Uh, could I go a little quieter? Thank you. Hey, how's that? You can still hear me, can't you? So, we're on to session four of Jesus' prayer. Yeah, you're thinking... It's only three lines, and he's already done four sermons. Uh, this time, hey, look, look, we're going to break a habit of a lifetime, and instead of just one word, we're going to do four words in a row. How about that? That's progress, isn't it? Hallowed be, or in the old-fashioned way, the way I was taught it, hallowed be thy name. Uh, I think that's got a, still got a lovely ring to it, hasn't it? Uh, in, you know, in, in just, and especially what we're focusing on today. Look, thus far, uh, we've looked at the fact that we address God generally, not always, it's, it's not a like tied down, it has to be, but generally as Father. So you're praying to. When we pray, we remember and recall we belong to a family, so our relationships matter. Last week, we looked at the transcendency of God, that he's in, he's in heaven. And, and, and that's an important geographical difference. It's telling us that he is above and beyond us. He's not just in Paris. You know, that wouldn't necessarily be an advantage. He's, he's beyond our realm. Uh, and the fact that he can be there puts him ahead, a step ahead of us, can you see? It, it puts him higher. He's above us. And today, really, is going to build on that as we... As we come to it, this is our fourth point, and it's a long, windy one. I'm sorry, you know, uh, brevity is not one of my skills. Okay, uh, our highest expression of worship in prayer 
is to seek the honouring of the holy name of our Heavenly Father. I told you, it's, it's, a, it's a lot, isn't it? Look, our highest expression of worship in prayer is to seek the honouring of the holy name of the heavenly, of our heavenly Father. This then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let me tell you a little bit about Job. We, we know, we were going to do Job in our sermon series. We may well be doing it sometime, maybe later this year or early next year. We'll get to it. Uh, but we'll do some other stuff before. Um, Job, he lost everything. We know that. And we start him with um, his donkeys, onto, onto his sheep, then onto his cattle. Finally, losing his kids, lost everything. It's, and this isn't an imaginative story. It's real. This is something that really happened. This man had, had everything Literally the wealthiest man. And, and by cattle, you know, we don't mean a few uh, hobby sheep, you know, that, that we do here in Australia, you know, uh, uh, you know, hobby farming, where we keep a couple of sheep just for fun, uh, something I fancy doing, you know, just for fun. Now, this, this was his wealth. This is what his money was banked in. This is his bank collapsing. This is him having catastrophic, catastrophic failure of property. And devastation in losing everything is God. And notice his response, and it's probably one of the high points in Scripture. Notice Job 1.20, Job's response to all this. At this Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be blessed or praised. What, is, what do you see there as the quintessential act of worship? Even before his words, what is, and this is what the word worship means. I know we, we, we have largely associated with singing and singing is worship. You know, we're not saying it's not. But it, it has a more primitive um, uh, meaning, it's, its highest form. What is worship? And we see Job do it there. It's even before he speaks. Where's, where, where can you see worship there? Yeah. He fell on his knees. He fell before God. His homage done to God. That's worship. It's, it's the highest an ultimate expression of worship. And then it filters through it's everything else, doesn't it? It filters through singing. It filters through what we're doing now, listening to God's word. It's filtered through uh, prayer that Nikki did for us. But ultimately, it's, it's bowing, it's submitting to God. That's the highest act of worship. It's, it's God before ourselves, if you like. And so when we come to Jesus' prayer, we see that some... Somewhat fleshed out. It's not just bowing, just mere bowing, but it's bowing to, to something. And that's what we're looking at today. Our highest expression of worship uh, in prayer is to seek the honouring of God's holy name. And so let me just start here. Prayer is, if I, if I, if I were to ask, and you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but what's prayer? What is prayer all about? What is prayer? Yes, it's talking to God. 
small. It's seeking God and that's getting closer. There's an even higher answer, if you like. Talk to God, seeking God. And, and I think, and that's almost the answer. We, we've, we've done three progressions. Yeah, or worshipping God. Yes. So we, that's what I was trying to get to from speaking. What did you say, Bron? You've forgotten, but it was a good point when she said it. Okay. Okay. But finally, ultimately, prayer is, and I think this is something we have to understand, prayer is the worship of God, the honouring of God, if you like. It is essentially about God. I know, it's, I know we want to communicate. We want to relay our needs. And if we're, if we're honest, most often when we come to prayer, it's to communicate an urgent need or some need. But at the heart of prayer is this worship of God. Because we have to remember, and we forget, don't we? Remember what Jesus said about God's awareness of our, of our need? What did he see in Matthew 6? It's in the same chapter. Can you remember what he says? Your heavenly Father knows. And here's the thing, and I think we forget this, don't we? In prayer, we're coming to God to communicate, but it's like somebody's already, somebody's already told him. And so we're going to communicate, and it's like your siblings. You know what it's like when you've got two kids? And you, you, you remember this, don't you? And someone wants to tell you something, but the other one's got in there first, and they're so frustrated that, that they told you before they got to tell you. The thing about prayer, you know, before you get to prayer, before you prayed, someone's already told him. He already knows. And, and that knowledge portrays to us is that he knows, he cares, he's already aware, he's been watching, better than he's been watching. He foresaw it. He didn't just watch the event, and this is a big one to get your head around, he hasn't just watched your, the event of the thing that you're now coming to God in desperation, in prayer, in, in real time. He hasn't just watched it in real time, he's watched it when? He watched it. How long ago do you think he watched it? It's not, that's not further enough away. For, have another go. How long ago do you think he watched it? Before the beginning of time. <laughs> almost there, Graham. Almost there. He, that fall, he knew he watched it in 3D, in real time, if you like, ever before Genesis 1.1. And so when we go to him in prayer, we have to remember, this isn't an educational lesson. We're not going to teach God. The thing about God is almost sounds boring, I know. But God can't learn anything. I wonder if we, we realise that. I don't know what time I started. Hang on. Four minutes ago. Okay. God, which means there's a long way to go, Brenton. <laughs> Say 20 minutes ago. Uh, God can't learn anything. We're never in God's presence in prayer to impart information that God is, doesn't already know. He knows everything. In fact, Psalm 139, verse 4. This is an incredible verse. Look at that. Before a word is on my tongue, 
Okay, even before you got to say it. He already knows. He already knows. So as much as our Heavenly Father, and Jesus is telling us to do this, wants to hear from us, wants us to speak, is listening. It's not to learn anything that he doesn't already know. In fact, he knows it before you knew it. You know when you're praying and the words you say, unless you've written it out, you don't even know quite what you're going to say. He actually knows the exact sentence that you're going to construct. The exact one. With all the commas, full stops and the stuttering, he knows. And so we have to remember in prayer, prayer must be more than me communicated to God. It must be because, because he already knows my communication. Prayer is bigger than me talking to God, bigger than me relaying what I need. Prayer is and ultimately an act of worship. And in that, Jesus constructs this prayer for us. And it's no accident. He doesn't do it by chance. This isn't like Jesus thinking on his feet, because they've just asked him, haven't they? Lord, teach us to pray. This isn't Jesus thinking on his feet. This isn't Jesus even planning this the night before when he was himself in prayer, knowing they're going to ask me tomorrow morning how to pray. I better have a plan in place. No, this is, this is Jesus with an answer before time began. Okay, Everything, everything for Jesus happens in eternity, in one, if you like, everything for God happens in a moment. There is no time construct, is there? And so this prayer is deliberately structured by Jesus. And notice the structure. What does the structure tell us? Because he's taken us four sermons and we still haven't got to fix my toe. What, what, what's the con- what does the structure of the prayer tell us? That the primary the a priori purpose of prayer. And structure matters, you see. I know for us, it's less matters. Unless you're royalty, it really doesn't matter who's born first. Who cares? And I, I, I forget too close how it hums. I know, I know there's, there's an element of sibling rivalry, isn't there? You know, you know somebody wants to be first. Uh, but really, it doesn't matter. Prior, you know, structure and order doesn't say a lot to us. But if we don't appreciate the high importance of structure, then we'll never understand the Bible. Never. The fact that Jesus is called the firstborn of creation is not telling you absurdly like the cult in our world would suggest, therefore, look, is the firstborn of creation. He must be less, less than God. He misses the point. The fact that Jesus is firstborn, that structure, that hierarchy tells you what? He is. He is above all. Order matters. And so the way that Jesus is ordering this prayer is telling you, and, and what does he put at the beginning? Because at the beginning is not. Give us today our daily bread. It's, it's nowhere near the top, is it? What is at the top? We, and it's still a part of the same sentence here, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we're, and we're now getting to the very heart of this prayer. And not just this prayer. Remember, this is the prayer to pray, isn't it? We now get into the heart of prayer. 
pray must get here. It must be a part of the equation of our own prayer. And if we're to listen to Jesus, prayer must follow a structure of this nature where God is the focus of it. It is to praise and honour our Holy Father. Not just Heavenly Father, but Holy Father. It's about having a zeal for God's reputation. You see, Can you see here? It's about a humbling of ourselves. It's about a priority where he is first. It's about communicating our zeal and worship of him. When he talks about his name here, we understand, don't we, our name is us. It's why biblical names had all those meanings. Because your name, you know, stuck, if you like. And it was a bit like how things were here back in the day, weren't they? If your name is Smith, we don't have any Smiths here, do we? It's probably because you are in the Smith family because that is your trade and therefore identity. You were the blacksmith's son. You know, that's how you were known. Your trade and you were synonymous almost. And so this reference of God's name is a reference to God, isn't it? The hallowing of his name is the hallowing of God himself. And so we come to this bit then, hallowed. And as a child, you learn these prayers. No one ever tells you what they mean. I have this bizarre thing with our kids. And, you know, they're always writing out words that they're learning these complex words. And I'm like, goodness sake, the things that teach kids today, they're learning complex words and they're learning to spell them and write them. But this is what surprised me. And I'm doing this more now that I've learned. And so I'm like, so what does it mean? And you know what the response was? Well, they don't teach you what it means. We just have to learn how to spell it. Seriously, is that right? Well, are they just telling me stories? They just, no, they are just, they're telling me stories. Apparently, they don't have to learn them. They do that later when they're older. That, is that true? They're just going to learn to spell them. I'm like, no. That is not how it works in this house. And so, so is that what it is? I'm breaking the structures. So I'm not teaching them what these words mean. You know, okay, you can learn to spell them, but I want you to know what they mean. Here's the thing. Hello, no one ever told me. I learned this prayer when I was, my early memories of schooling is when I was six, soon after. You know, I, I, I migrated to the UK. I can still remember it, remember school, because I didn't hear, understand the word they were saying. <laughs> and that, was, that wasn't because they were using big words. That was because they were using English. Yeah, you know when you move, no one teaches you the language on the plane. You learn it in school, and it's a hard job, I tell you. I was in the bottom of every class. Uh, not that that would, I'm not suggesting that wouldn't be the same today, but it certainly was the case then. No one ever told me what it meant. What does this word mean? Who knows what it means? Hallowed. What does that mean? Yeah, it means holy in the verbal form of it. We know this much, don't we? A verb is a, in the simplest way, is a doing word. Hallowed is, the, hallowed is the verb of holy. And so praying, hallowed be your name, is praying, holy be your name. Or may your name be sanctified, 
holified, if you like. If you like. Not that God's name can be anymore. But it's not that it's not holy, but the prayer is for that holiness to be what felt, experienced, known. That's what we're praying. God, we want your name to become, the holiness of your name to become more apparent in our world. Here's what, here's what Carson says. Therefore, to pray that God's name be hallowed is not to pray that God may become holy, because he's already holy, but that he may be treated as holy, that his name should not be despised by the thoughts and conduct of those who have been created by his, in his image. It's that the, the fame and the, 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 the preciousness and the value of God's name, the holiness of God's name particularly, may be extended. Maybe no, maybe felt. That's what we're praying. It took me to become a preacher before I knew that. Seriously. I had no I don't think everybody understood what he meant until I went to college. And and so hallowed is holy is the verbal form of it. Now when we think of holiness, here's the thing, and look, I've often held this position. I, I, I'm not sure I hold it anymore, but holiness is said to be the primary attribute of God. One of the things about being a preacher, and you'll, you'll know if you know this, that as, as students of the Word, it's, it's what you essentially are, a pastor is essentially a student of the Word, is that if we come into the Bible as a student of the Word, it means what must the Word do to the preacher first before anybody else? It must. It must educate us. It must always be open to the preacher must always be open to learning. Yeah, I'm I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading on hell, actually. Uh, 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 a sphere aspect. I might do a sermon on it at some time that I've never considered or rejected previously. And and this is, and if you know me, you know even even in the time that I've been here, five years. My thinking on theology in at least two areas has has moved majorly, and 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 the response to that shouldn't be, well, don't you know it all? You should have known that. Didn't Bible college teach you that? No, no. Bible college doesn't teach you theology. What does Bible college do? It does. Thank you, Yvonne. It gives you the tools to begin to explore theology. Carson speaks in a situation like this to a, to a PhD graduate and they're talking about an aspect of theology and the response of this theologian was, this PhD theologian, he goes, oh, I did all that at college, you know, you know I, I, I haven't, I'm not revisiting that. And Carson, he, he laughed internally because he, he, he thought to himself, wasn't doing it, this is now, a, 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 what's the highest one, the third one, the tertiary one I just mentioned, a PhD isn't the purpose of a PhD to introduce you to your subject? Not to complete it. And so I think it needs to be constantly challenging, I'm going to suggest. And so here on this too, my own thinking is in some state of flux. Because, because I've always been taught generally that holiness is the primary ultimate attribute of God. 
I don't know. I'm not sure. I think we have to give love a chance. I think, I think we, we've, we've got to be at least open to, to God, not having a singular primary attribute. Maybe it's multifaceted. And so, you know, love, holiness, maybe at least two dual. And these aren't just mere attributes of God. I think that's the way to look at it. I think these two stand apart in that they're not merely characteristics of God. What are they? They're not just merely elements of God's nature. What are they? They're much more than that. They are, they are essence. They are essentially God. And so 1 John 4, and it's in several places in 1 John, isn't it? God is love. It's not merely an attribute, not merely one feather in his cap. God is essentially, in essence, love. And so don't, I don't think we can, we can narrow God down to only his holiness. I think love certainly is there, even if it's... If it's uh, uh, these dual elements, and then God is holy, Isaiah 6, and the same is repeated in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The New Bible Dictionary, just going back to holiness, I think we'll just stick with that for now is what we're doing. Holiness is his quintessential nature, his very selfhood. So when we think of what is holy, the answer is obvious. When we think of holiness, it's God. It's God. When we think of, when we think of God, we're to think of his holiness. And, I mean, prayer aside, his love, but, but prayer, just I'm focusing on the prayer for now, we're to think, what is holiness? Holiness is God. Okay, but that doesn't still answer the question, does it? What is holiness? What then is holiness? Because we see what we're looking at. It's, it's the prayer. What is holiness? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Theologians have argued, and this is again has been the traditional uh, position. Holiness, says Carson, is often thought of as separateness. And so what we're saying is God is uniquely apart from us. He is uniquely apart from us in that we are created. He is not. He is separate in that he is transcendent above and beyond us. And so in one very real sense, when we're talking about what is holiness, what is holy, it's that separateness, that God is separate, distance, distant from us in every conceivable way. God regarded this separateness, this distinctiveness of God and his name to such an extent that they wouldn't even, what would, they, what would a Jew not even do with God's name? To, 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 to emphasize this, this separateness, this distance that existed between them and God. He is there and we're here. They wouldn't even say his name. See this? They were afraid to use his name. And we'd use all forms around his, typically Lord. We know that's why in our Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, 
It was great to hear our kids this week talk about the Testament. And how the Old Testament is a Jewish book. I thought, wow. I mean, boy, seriously, to hear your kids say that because they've learned it at school. What a privilege. And so... And so, I don't know, we got on to the, yeah, the Jews. So, so the, the, they would, in the Bible, they, you know, that whenever you see the word Lord in capital, it's Jehovah, the name of God, but changed to the Lord because the Jew wouldn't, didn't, wouldn't even want to read, say out loud, or even say in his head the name of Jehovah, or Yahweh is um, closer to his original name. Um, language and so holiness is perhaps can be explained to mean God's separateness but it's obviously more than that and I want to add to that holiness is a reference to the standard of everything the standard of all that is right so Leviticus 20 you are holy you are to be holy God says because I, the Lord, am holy. Can you see what God is saying? Holiness, if you like, is God's, is the plumb line of everything. It's, it's God in who he is morally. It's, it's, it's how we gauge what is right and wrong. How, do we, how can we possibly know what is right and wrong? We take a standard from God, and this is the great moral argument for, for, for creation, you know, as opposed to evolution. There's another position I've done a lot of recent exploration on and fluidity in my own uh, thinking is, is that typically one of the big arguments to argue whether you believe in theistic evolution or, 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 or um, what's the other one? Creation? What's the term for it? Yeah, literal, okay. Or literal, six-day creation. Whichever model you take, the argument, one of the strengths we have that God created the world and it didn't just come about by accident is the fact that we have a moral compass. You see, if we just evolve, there is no morality. You can kill and eat anybody you want to. Why wouldn't you be able to? Who can say that is wrong? You see, the only way you can say... Okay, the only way I can say, look, let me give you an example. The only way I can say that is not straight because we know what straight is, okay? And, and we know what that is because we've invented straight. See, for us to say it's wrong for Brenton to kill somebody and eat them, we have to have something to measure, something that has to define what, that it's wrong to eat somebody. Okay? I'm using this because it's the kind of thing he thinks about. Okay? Right. Can you see the point? Now, if we've just evolved, what's to say you, you can't? What's to say you can't kill everybody in your country? Why would that be wrong? What makes that wrong? You know, somebody has to tell you it's wrong. You see, and this is where the God factor comes in. The reason that we know universally every country in the world, every human in the world, agrees that the murder is wrong, no society would disagree with that. It's because there's something written on our heart, a code, and we're saying, and this is where evolutionists cannot answer and they try to ignore it, is where did the code come from? It can't have developed by chance. 
it must have come from an objective source. And this is what holiness is when we're talking about God. God becomes the objective source. He is the rule. He is the plumb line. He is the gauge from which we withdraw we every position that we maintain. What is it to be human? Somebody answer that. What is it to be human? Well, yes, that, that, would, that, is, that would be a secular answer. Now, that is right. I, I think, therefore, I am. You're thinking of Descartes, aren't you? Okay, and there is some truth to that. But, 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 but biblically, okay, what is it to be human? It's in Genesis 1, 2. It is now Genesis 3. That's Genesis 3. Genesis, it is 1, it's the end of 1. What's Genesis 1? What is it to be human? It's to image, it's to image God. Okay. Every thing that we know has its gauge, its referent, its starting point in God. That's, that's, I think that's what holiness is. It's the standard for everything. And so, how do I treat the poor? How do I treat the physical world that I live in? How do I relate to people, to young people, old people, girls, boys? How do I relate to those who disappoint us? How do I relate to government? How do I judge what is good? How do I do it? How do I know what's right about anything? It's God's holiness. It sets the parameters of everything. Here's what the New Bible Dictionary says. Holiness is always derived and dependent upon proximity or relationship to the Holy God. Where does evil increase? Why is our society increasingly passing legislation that's more and more depraved? Because as a nation and as a world, we are distancing ourselves more and more from this proximity to God. And so the answer to all of the moral decline in our world, all we're doing when we're trying to fix moral issues, we're just putting plasters on them, aren't we? The fix is to get a sight again of God and His holiness. So holiness is God, therefore. Can you see that? Now, something about holiness I want to say here is that it's, it's somewhat dangerous, this, this, this concept, to, to, to be talking about it. Even writing this sermon, you have no idea of the mental anguish I've gone through in writing this sermon. Because you can't write a sermon like this and go put the TV on and just watch whatever you want. Because you're now thinking, you, you, what have you just been writing? And so I want to suggest this, uh, praying this prayer is like praying next to a vortex. What's a vortex? Look, I've got a definition. It's a whirling mass of water or air that sucks everything needed towards its center. It's a place or situation regarded as drawing into its center all that surrounds it and leaving nothing inex inescapable or destructive. 
Praying Jesus' prayer is like being in the center of a vortex because you can't just pray it and not be affected by it. Praying that prayer, seriously, it's dangerous. It's, 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 it sucks you in. Not even, not even willingly. It's not like you're choosing to. You're unwittingly sucked in by the prayer. It makes you complicit. Without choice. Seriously, don't pray it. Because it makes you complicit. I remember, I'll, tell you what, I'll explain what being complicit is. I'm sure you don't need any, any help understanding English. Uh, it's been a long time since you left the motherland, though. You know, we're talking a couple of centuries, okay? Okay, look, I must have been 12, maybe 13, a couple of years ago. And we're sitting in pottery class, okay? Uh, and uh, the doors are open. It's, it's, I think it's a summer's day. It doesn't mean it's warm, but the doors are open. Okay, it's summer. And there's a big courtyard the size of the area out there uh, across when there's, you know, it's a walkway where you walk to class or whatever, or, you know, hang, hang out, hang around. And it's, it's November. Okay, it's coming towards November the 5th. Oh, yeah, that's not even summer, is it? No, it's winter. I, I, you know, living here completely confuses you. You, don't, you never know where winter and summer fall. Okay? Okay, so it's winter. Yeah, pardon? It's autumn. Thanks, Graham. Uh, and so it's coming up to November the 5th. Okay? And so my mate, our mate, the several of us, has got some, he's got some fireworks. Rockets. Okay? And so what do you think the conversation is? What do you think the conversation is? Go on! Go on! I dare you! Okay? He's got a rocket. He's got a match. And here's us. Me, too. Okay? I'm like, come on, do it. That'd be great. Down the courtyard. Go on, go for it. What does he do? The next thing. Down the courtyard, out of pottery class. Boom! A rocket flies out the class. I'm not kidding you. Do not do this as well. This is why you don't sell fireworks to anybody in Australia. No one can buy fireworks here, can they? In the UK, still, you buy fireworks at, you know, bonfire. And so, <laughs> you can imagine what happens. Okay, the teacher's mad. All right, okay. And so, who gets sent to the headmaster's office? How many? All of us. Five of us. That's what being complicit is. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Okay, but five of us are sitting outside of the Mr. Black's head, and that the name itself will tell you what's going to come. And I'm sitting there thinking, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to reduce the sting? Because what's coming? What's coming? The cane. They were the days. That's what's coming. And I'm sitting there thinking, what can I do? A book. The best I could come up with. Okay, an engineer back then, you see. I'm just trying to figure out what can I do to lessen the pain. The book is what I... And I thought, I'll get the book. Oh, you know, a book will do. If I can get out of a book. How do I get a book before I get into his office? There's no books there. They don't put books near you because they obviously know that's what you do. Yeah. But by the grace of God, only, only the guy got it. But boy, were we in trouble. That's what being complicit is about. Being complicit is is that you're guilty by association. I didn't do it. Okay? I wasn't even standing next to him when it happened. 
But I would. And that's what being complicit is, isn't it? That is the question. Would he have still done it if we weren't saying, I was just one of lots of voices. If we weren't saying, I don't know why he mentioned me, there were another 20 other people in the class, okay? Go on! When you pray the Lord's Prayer and say, hallowed be your name, you're saying, come on! You're complicit. You're complicit in it. You're complicit in it in two ways. In praying the prayer, we reveal that we are Christian, and as such, by default, we are instruments through which God's name, I think it's the next slide, instruments by which God's name is seen by others. We become, as it were, ambassadors for his name. In saying that, we are involving ourselves with the transition of God's holiness. And B, as representatives of God, we, in saying this prayer, we are choosing to pursue a life that reflects the holiness of his name and thus become pointers to God's hallowed name. It's a big deal praying Jesus' prayer. At the head of it is emphasis on his holiness. And that holiness is something we become complicit in distributing it, if you like. If this is a resource, we become complicit by association in distributing it. And by saying it, we become complicit by, by taking ownership of our responsibility. That's what we're doing. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying that this is our passion. This is our worship. We identify with the movement that wants God's name to be hallowed in our world and we choose to, by the grace of God, live lives that reflect His holiness. Hallowed be your name is perhaps the most powerful element in the Lord's Prayer. It's a part that has the greatest impact on us consciously and by association it's dangerous in that sense we cannot pray the Lord's prayer hallowed be your name and leave prayer the same way as we entered it we can't our father in heaven hallowed Living Word Bible Church Teaching the Bible verse by verse